Good morning. My name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. And I got to say, Happy New Year also. This is my first sermon of the year. So uh, very excited to have a new year upon us. I got to say a couple things really quick. Um, This, I feel like the production on Sunday morning is more complicated now that we're online. I feel like there's more moving pieces. And this team is amazing how quick and how uh, almost acrobatic they are at getting the stage shifted and moved. And I'm just so impressed. The other thing I want to say is I just, I love this community so much. I, I feel like since we've gone online since we've separated and isolated because of quarantine, I actually feel like I'm getting closer to the Woodland Hills community. It's the strangest thing. And we've been able to highlight all sorts of new people that that uh, ha- haven't really been on the stage and haven't really been in front of the congregation uh, because of this technological change that we've made. And I'm just super thrilled about that and excited for it. Uh, I am going to kick off a new series uh, today, and it's a series inside of our bigger series on the Sermon on the Mount, and this new series is called The Law of Love. My sermon is called Dashboard Discipleship, and hopefully that will become clear why it's called that by the end, and if you don't understand it, then I have failed miserably. Uh, But before I get to this new series, I want to start off with a dilemma. Uh, It's a discipleship dilemma. And uh, as a person who is a disciple of Jesus, uh, I want to know, how does Jesus want me to be? How does Jesus want me to live? That's obviously, that's what disciples care about. That's the most important thing. And yet, I find that there's this dilemma that I have where I'm reading the Bible because as a disciple of Jesus, of course, we look to the scripture to find out how God and Jesus want me to live. And so I look and I feel like I get hit with two different expectations that seem opposed to one another. And, uh, and so that's the dilemma I want to share. So for instance, uh, on one hand, I feel like the, the text gives me this really kind of harsh, unbending expectation, this high expectation for how I need to be obedient. In fact, uh, we're in Matthew chapter 5 right now, and by the end of this chapter, Matthew 5, 48, the last verse of the chapter, Jesus says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. I mean, talk about a high expectation. I mean, you have to be as perfect as God. (laughs) I mean, that's like, that's huge. I mean, how do I even approach that expectation? But when the Bible hits you with that, this kind of harsh, unbending expectation, all of a sudden it comes at you from the other direction with this softness and tolerance and mercy and forgiveness. Uh, Jesus tells Peter, Peter says, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother and sister? I mean, this guy, he is just driving me crazy. And Jesus says, forgive endlessly. Forgive seven times 70. Just keep forgiving. Be a forgiveness machine. See how that's like very soft and tolerant? Uh, Jesus says this in Luke 6.36. He says, be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. Be as merciful as God. So now that's like omni-merciful. We have to be as merciful as possible. That's totally different than being perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect and being obedient in that high sort of exalted way. James says that the wisdom from above is full of mercy. And so you get this two directions that you get pulled in. Uh, In the book of James, uh, speaking of the book of James, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, James says this, and this is, this is scary. This is like, almost like a Halloween verse that's so scary. He says, we have to be perfect at everything. If we screw up just one little bit, if we make one little sin, then we're just like somebody who sins nonstop their whole lives. That's how fragile our righteousness is, according to James in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. But then in the very next paragraph, the very next paragraph, he says that mercy is more important than everything. That's good news because <laughs> this idea that I can't even screw up once, that is a, a, a heavy load to, to bear. And, uh, and so that's kind of the feeling that you get. You get these both directions. Jesus, in one interaction, gives us both too. It, it, this is the famous story where he comes upon this crowd. There's this angry mob, and they're all holding these big rocks. And uh, Jesus goes in to find out what's going on. And they see, he sees that they're going to stone this woman who was caught in adultery. And he steps in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, Let he without sin cast the first stone. 
And of course, none of them were without sin, and so they eventually dropped their stone and they dispersed. And the reader reads that and you get those warm tingles because of the mercy that Jesus shows to this woman caught in adultery. And, but immediately the warm tingles go away because Jesus turns to the woman and says, go and sin no more. Ah, uh, man, you were just getting pulled in both directions here. Can you see that dilemma? Like, which way should I be? And sometimes I tell you, you just got to set the Bible aside and just let it cool off for a little while and maybe come back to it later because sometimes it seems like it's sending two mixed messages. I mean, how should I, should I live rigorously toward obedience or should I relax into this lifestyle of mercy and forgiveness and tolerance? And that's the dilemma that, that I want to use to sort of introduce uh, our next Sermon on the Mount series, which is going to be on Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And in that passage, it says this. Jesus says to his disciples and to the crowd, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you this, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa, there's a lot of depth there. There's so many profound things, that, and we're hopefully we'll get to them. Uh, we'll, we'll be in this text here for a few weeks, and, and it's hard to even know where exactly to start. And really, this passage, this pericope, as Bible scholars call it, is uh, kind of sets the table for the whole rest of the chapter. Uh, Jesus is talking about what he's going to do about the Old Testament law, about the Old Testament writings, and how his ministry is going to relate to that. Namely, he's going to fulfill it. And then after this passage, passage, he gives all sorts of examples of what that means to fulfill the Old Testament expectations. But what I want to do is I want to look at this passage and kind of hopefully show how this is where I sort of found a solution to my dilemma that I shared with you at the beginning. Uh, in particular, verse 20 uh, really sort of helped me solve this when, when Jesus says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, what does Jesus mean by surpass there? Um, and that's sort of where I, I found, I think I found my solution. But in order to understand what he means by surpass, you have to understand what he means in verse 17 when he says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so that's what I'm going to look at. I'm going to look at, at verse 17 and verse 20, sort of the bookends of this pericope. Uh, and so starting with verse 17, we need to figure out what Jesus means by fulfilling the law. And, and so when you hear law, you're probably thinking rules. And that makes sense because, you know, a law is sort of a rule. But that's not quite right. Uh, Jesus is using this phrase, the law and the prophets. It's sort of a common Jewish phrase. And what it means is it sort of means the entire Old Testament canon. It means the whole collection of, of ancient writings. It means the, the five books of the Pentateuch and all of the writings afterwards, all of it. Jesus is, when he says the law and the prophets, that's what he means. Jesus is fulfilling everything that this complicated revelation sort of points to, including the laws and the rules and all of that. And so somehow Jesus is saying, somehow in how Jesus lived, in how Jesus died, and in how Jesus was resurrected, that somehow fulfills all of the hopes of Israel. Uh, the hopes for a victorious covenant because they had experienced so many failed covenants, the hopes of justice and reconciliation, the hopes that maybe the promises to Abraham would finally be fulfilled, that maybe they might finally have victory over sin and death, and that creation would be restored, and the hope that there might be real purpose and meaning in life, and of course, the greatest hope, which is union with God. Jesus is fulfilling all of those hopes when he is fulfilling the law and the prophets. And it's confusing because Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. But then later on in the New Testament, you run into this problem. Paul seems to think that Jesus is abolishing the law. Uh, he says this in Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law, <laughs> so that there may be righteousness for all who believe. 
Galatians 3, 23 to 25, Paul makes this argument that the law had always been a temporary guardian. That was the intent. It was a temporary guardian until Christ came. Well, now Christ has come, so we don't need that temporary guardian anymore. And so Jesus says that he has not come to abolish the law, but it seems to Paul like Jesus has abolished the law. There's another mystery. That's another problem. That's the, isn't that the way life is? You come to the text with a problem, and it gives you like a bunch more, and it's like this pyramid of problems that you have to solve. And praise God, the important problems have solutions, including this one, I think. Uh, I think the answer to this is that Paul is referring to something different than Jesus is referring to. When Paul is talking about the law, he's actually talking about the specific rules. He's talking about those specific laws, those 600 and some uh, Old Testament laws. He's talking about the stipulations of these old covenants that, that the Pharisees and his fellow Jews were still keeping. He's getting a lot more granular than Jesus was. Really, there's a lot of reasons for this. There's reasons why he's getting granular and Jesus is getting more grandiose. Uh, at least one reason, I think, is this, and this is the important reason for our purposes. They're addressing two different problems. Paul is addressing his fellow Jews who had taken these Old Testament rules too seriously. They had exalted these rules, and they had become legalistic uh, toward them. Jesus I will argue, is addressing the opposite problem. He's addressing people who maybe might not take the rules seriously enough. Now that he has come to fulfill the law, maybe uh, they can just dismiss all of these rules. Uh, He's going after people who had become passive about the rules. And so those are the two problems that Jesus and Paul are addressing. And I believe that when we can understand those problems a little bit, then we will start to understand the dilemma that I opened the message with. So let's look at those problems. First, let's look at the legalism that Paul is, is kind of going after. For Paul, he saw in his fellow Jews, he saw these Pharisees, they were just hustling and toiling to keep these old covenant uh, rules. And, and now that the, the old covenant had been fulfilled in this covenant with Jesus, um, things were different. Justification took place in a different way. And let me just say, first of all, right now that I'm really embarrassed about how simplistic I'm going to talk about justification here. And if you are a Pauline scholar, please give me some grace. I just want to make a point out of this. If you want to learn more about all of the different nuances of justification, Paul Eddy and Jim Bilby have a really great book called Five Views on Justification. I highly recommend looking at it. But simplistically, uh, the Jews had always believed that they could be justified before God. They would be okay before God if they kept the, the Old Testament expectations. And, uh, but now, that justification is done differently. Now we are justified vicariously through Jesus. We're justified by grace. Justification, okayness, is given to us as a free gift. This is a totally different way of looking at our relationship with God. But these old habits, they die so hard. And, and this uh, kind of persistence and, and obsession with keeping rules persisted uh, even after Jesus came and fulfilled the law. And so that's what legalism looks like. Legalism is what it looks like when we make obedience to rules an end in itself, when we exalt obedience to rules uh, higher than it, it's supposed to be. Because the reason why that's a problem is because it always leads to a type of death. It, types to, it leads to a type of like spiritual inner death. Jesus knew this, and he, he diagnosed the Pharisees who were famous for their rule-keeping. He said in Matthew 23, look at these guys. They're like whitewashed tombs. They're very pretty and clean on the outside, but they are dead on the inside. And oh, oh yeah, these guys can keep a rule, but... They've missed the whole point of the rules. The whole point of the rules was that they could be merciful and just and faithful. And they're none of that. As good as they are at keeping these silly rules, look at them. They're not just. They're not merciful. They're not faithful. They've missed the whole point. And and that's sort of what legalism does. When you obsess about the rules themselves, you miss the deeper point. And this is not just an ancient problem. And this is not just even a religious problem. I bet that you have experienced the kind of the dead feeling of legalism yourself, just in day-to-day life, I bet. A story that I will share uh, took place where I've experienced the deadness of legalism took place uh, at Target. (laughs) Uh, I went to Target to buy a headlight. This is back in the 1990s. 
And I went to Target to get my headlight, and I got my headlight, and I brought it up to the checkout counter, and I paid for my headlight, and the lady went to put it in a bag, and I said, no, no bag, please. I mean, the headlight itself is probably already wrapped in plastic, and then there's probably some type of fiber filling around that, and then there's a cardboard box, and then she wants to put it in a bag on top of that. I mean, this is not nuclear waste. It's just a headlight. You know, I don't need all of these layers. And I said, so no bag, please. And she said, well, it's our policy to put it in a bag. And I was going to argue with her, but I said, ah, shoot, I forgot toothpaste. I'll be right back. So I went, I ran, I got toothpaste, I came back, bought my toothpaste, and I saw that she put my headlight in a bag. And I said, you know, ma'am, I, I said no bag. And she said, well, it's our policy. And I said, I know, but I don't, I don't want one. And she said, well, it's for your protection. And I said, how? How is a bag for my protection? And she said, it's so that we know when you leave the store that you actually paid for your items. And I wanted to argue with her. I wanted to say, well, look, I could sneak a Target bag in here and fill it with stuff, but I figured, you know what, it's not even worth it. Just give me the bag. So I grabbed the bag and I left and I could hear her calling for me as I'm leaving the store and she said, sir, your receipt. <laughs> and I said, I don't need a receipt. I have a bag. And then I left and that was the end of the story. But that is what legalism feels like where it's like, what is the point of this? If, if it's ruining customer service, is this really worth this policy to force people to take a bag, which I don't think they do anymore, but back then it was a big deal. We all know the danger of legalism, especially if you're in a Protestant church. You've probably heard so many servants where, you know, we sort of make the Pharisees unfairly. We make them a villain. Uh, they weren't as bad as usually churches make them out to be, but it serves as a great teaching mechanism. So I think that's why churches do that. And, and we know the dangers of legalism, on top of which we have the Apostle Paul and his campaign against the Old Testament, and, uh, the Old Testament laws, and, and, and his kind of emphasis on grace. And so it makes sense that there's this temptation and for Christians to sort of go the other way and to just flee legalism at all costs and to just maybe even disregard the Old Testament because that's where legalism lies. And instead of obsessing about obeying, maybe I can just live fully in grace and free myself from all of the constraints of expectations. And, and, and that makes sense because if everything that needs to be done is done in Jesus, well then what else is there for me to do? There's not much else there for me. And if I can't earn my salvation, if it's a gift, well then why should I even try? It seems like putting a lot of effort into anything would sort of be defeating the purpose of a gift. And so maybe I can just sort of relax and let God do everything for me. And uh, that's the temptation, and I understand that temptation. But I think in reading the New Testament, I've come to the opinion that that is an overreaction. It's an overreaction to the danger of legalism. In fact, dismissing expectations and shrugging off uh, responsibility is sort of the definition of what passivity is. And, and that's sort of what Jesus is going after. Where Paul was going after legalism, I think that Jesus in Matthew 5 is going after passivity uh, in this passage. I mean, right away, Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Why does he say that? That assumes that some people were thinking that he was going to abolish the law. Some people were thinking that he doesn't care about the Old Testament expectations. And he says, no, 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 no. This is not a get out of the Old Testament free card. This, I am not abolishing that. In fact, what he says is that I have not come to abolish it, but I've come to fulfill it. And by fulfill it, he says, not only are we going to not well, that's a really weird sentence. Not only am I not encouraging people to disobey the Old Testament laws or to shrug off the Old Testament laws, I'm actually going to amplify the expectations a little bit. The Pharisees, who are famous for their obedience, their righteousness is nothing compared to the righteousness of my disciples. My disciples are going to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. And then he starts going into these passages where you have heard it said, do not murder. But I'm telling you, do not be angry at your brother or sister. And you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, don't even look at people lustfully. He is totally upping the ante on these things. When he says he has not come to abolish the law, he means it. He is amplifying the expectations here. Even to the extent that in, in Matthew 7, 21, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he asks this penetrating question in Luke 6.46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
in Jesus' mind, if we are going to make Jesus Lord, obedience still plays a role. There's still this role for God's expectations for us. The Apostle Paul agrees. The Apostle Paul, who's famous for his preaching on grace and the importance of grace over rule-keeping, even he says this in Romans 3.31. He says, Do we nullify the law by God's grace? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Expectations, both Paul and Jesus take expectations seriously. God has expectations for his people. Of course God does. Anybody who loves another person has expectations for them. Uh, But the expectations should be taken in the right way. God wants us to take expectations seriously, but in the right way. The Pharisees took the expectations seriously, very seriously, but they took them very seriously in the exact wrong way. Uh, and, And how I think of it, to kind of make sense to me is this. When God gave an expectation, like a rule, the Pharisees looked at that rule and asked this wrong question. They said, how do I keep that rule? How do I keep that rule? That was the question that they asked. And wow, were they good at it. <laughs> they, these guys could keep a rule. I mean, they were awesome. They excelled at it. In fact, what they did was, if there was a rule, let's just say, do not lust, they would add a whole bunch of rules around it so that they wouldn't even be tempted to break that rule. So they might say, uh, we're going to add a new rule that women cannot show any skin. They must cover themselves fully. And the rules, in this case, was against women because all the Pharisees were men. Very convenient for them. But the problem is, is that, you know, sometimes, boy, women, women can smell really good and um, covering them might not be enough. How about this rule too? Women have to walk on the other side of the street as men and men must not walk on the same side of the street as a woman. And so they would add all of these rules. It's called putting a hedge around the Torah. These guys were good rule keepers. They would add all of these rules and, and they put so much work into that. But that method ultimately leads to death. Obsession with keeping the rule ultimately leads to death. And the more effort you put into it, the more rapidly you lead to that death. Effort ends up being sort of a sabotaging uh, exponent. It's like a, a steroid on failure is what it ends up being. Rather than asking, how do I keep this rule? What Jesus is calling us to, I believe, is a totally different question. How we're supposed to respond to God's expectations is like this. What type of person naturally lives in this way? And how do I become that type of person? Because these expectations that God gives us, these are just indicators. They're like pointers to some deeper personhood that God really wants us to be. There's always something deeper. And that's why we see Jesus. He's like, you said, you've heard it said, do not murder, but I'm telling you something deeper. Do not even have anger in your heart. Do not even have violence in your heart. That's that deeper character that Jesus is going after. And we see this in in day-to-day life too. Uh, You know, I've done a lot of things in my life. I've tried a lot of things and, uh, you know, learned how to program and I've, I've done some real estate. I've done graduate school and uh, not because I'm a jack of all trades because I'm really not good at a lot of the stuff I do. Uh, I just like to try things. And one of the things that I tried was I invested in a bubble tea store. It's kind of like a coffee shop, but for like tea and bubble tea. And one of the things that we were trying to do in this tea shop is we were trying to improve the customer service experience there. And what I really wanted out of the baristas is that when people came in the front door, I wanted people to feel like they were welcome there, that we were happy that they were there, that this was a place where they belonged there, that, that, that it just fit for them and they felt good being there. And, and I, I told the baristas, I said, you know, when I come in and you're leaning against the counter, just kind of slouching against the counter, I feel like I'm interrupting your rest and I don't feel like, I don't feel good about being there. And when I see that you're on your phone, I feel like I'm interrupting something that you'd rather be doing. And, uh, and I really like it when I come in and people say nice things like, hey, we're glad that you're here and isn't this great weather, you know? And I, I was kind of coaching them on, on this. And what I found was over the next couple weeks is that they were really good about not slouching on the counter anymore. That was very nice. But they figured out a way <laughs> to use the cash register iPad to surf the internet and to get on their social media. They were not on their phone. That's what I specifically said. I said, please don't be on your phone. And they obeyed the rule, but they still found this way to kind of be surfing the internet. And then what I found 
found was people would come in and they would say, hey, we're so glad that you're here. Isn't this great weather? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Isn't this great weather? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Isn't this great weather? Like a broken record. And it's like, no, that's not what I, that's not what I meant. They, they were following the rules, but they were missing the point of it all. And my favorite example of this is from the movie Idiocracy, which is a genius movie. And it's about this guy, just totally normal, normal intelligence, normal guy, who gets accidentally cryogenically frozen. And then he gets thawed 500 years in the future. And in the future, he ends up being the smartest guy in the world because of the dumbing down of society over 500 years. And one of the things that he does is he goes to Costco. And this Costco is the size of Iowa. And there's like airplanes and trains in it and everything. And, and he goes through the front door and there's this door greeter. And you see sort of the, the decay of customer service over 500 years as this guy just stands at the door like this dolt and says, welcome to Costco. I love you. Welcome to Costco. I love you. Welcome to Costco. I love you. To everybody who walks in, that's what he says. And just this dull, dead sort of mindlessness. But that is legalism. He's obeying the rule, but he's missing the deeper truth. And that's exactly, I think, what the Pharisees have been accused of. They're, instead of being godly, they settled for mere obedience. But the fact is, is that God doesn't want us to just act like we are agape lovers. He wants us to actually be agape lovers. He wants something deeper. And this, I think, is what it means to have a, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Uh, because there's a depth and a sincerity that you just can't get at with rules. And we all know it. We all, we can sense the superficiality. We can sense the thinness. Welcome to Costco, I love you. We know that that's just not real. There's nothing real there. And, and, and Jesus is calling us to something deeper. This is why he says in, in uh, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine to 40 that love uh, fulfills the law. When, when our heart matures to the point where we are able to love even people that we don't like, especially people that we don't like, then we sort of thoughtlessly, kind of naturally fulfill all of the law. We avoid seeking vengeance just naturally. We don't have to think about not seeking vengeance. We just naturally do that because we are loving people. We just naturally avoid gossiping and bad-mouthing people. We naturally build people up because that's just who we are and that's the depth, that's the righteousness that sur surpasses the, the mere rule-keeping. Uh, Surpassing the, the righteousness of the Pharisees, it's, it's a journey. Becoming agape lovers is a journey, and it requires something from us. It requires sincerity and honesty as we approach the text and as we approach our lives, and it, it requires some perseverance, but it also requires certain things from God, I believe. It requires that God be graceful and give us some space to learn and to grow. He needs to give us that, that slack. But he also has to give us expectations and guidance. We have to know where we're going. And, and that's why I think that we need both God's grace and God's guidance. Uh, just like we need both salt and light, we need both God's grace and God's guidance. We certainly need God's grace. We need, I mean, whew, especially after hearing how Jesus amplifies the expectations of, of the Old Testament. Uh, I mean, to not even look at a person lustfully. If you look at a person lustfully, you've committed adultery. Do you realize how many times that I violated that by the time I graduated high school? I mean, wow, I need grace. And, and that's just a high standard. And the Apostle Paul kind of experienced this same sort of inner turmoil as well. He said that uh, there's these things that I want to do. I want to obey God's expectations. That's what I want to do. And then there's things that I don't want to do. But I don't ever do the things that I want to do. I always end up doing the thing that I don't want to do. And there's like this madness that, that the Apostle Paul sort of talks about. We need grace, he says, because this is not easy stuff. This is advanced personhood. This is advanced citizenship for an advanced uh, kingdom. Uh, in Romans 5.20, the Apostle Paul even says that, you know, the whole point of the law was to show us that we need grace. And Jesus, his last request to God as he's dying on the cross was to forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They need grace. They need forgiveness. But we also need guidance. We really do. We need guidance and we need expectations. Jesus says this. He assesses humanity in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And I just love how he assesses, he assesses uh, humanity here. He, he, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless. 
And <laughs> I tell you, harassed and helpless, that is still my favorite assessment of humanity because when you look at the news and you look at what's going on in the world, it just looks like harassed and helpless. Even people who seem like they have everything figured out and have it all together, deep down, harassed and helpless. I believe that. But then watch how Jesus diagnoses the root of this. Why are people harassed and helpless? He concludes the verse, Matthew 9, 36, by saying that they were like sheep without a shepherd. That is, the people need a shepherd. They need guidance. They need expectations. And this, I believe, is why the Bible is full of expectations. Even the New Testament, the, the, new, the new covenant that's all about grace, loaded with expectations for God's people. This is just a small smattering that I pulled from the Apostle Paul's writings. Paul commands his, his audience, his brothers and sisters, to avoid godless chatter, to turn away from wickedness, to live in peace, to be patient with all, to not seek vengeance, to regard no one from a worldly point of view, to carry each other's burdens, to carry your own burden, to let your gentleness show to all of those around you, to uh, remember to show hospitality to strangers, to remember those who are in prison or who are being mistreated as if you were there with them. And it goes on and on and on and on. There's hundreds of these types of expectations. We are saved by God's grace, but God's grace does not diminish God's expectations for us. Rather, what I believe is that God's grace and God's guidance sort of form a system for those who are sincerely seeking God. God's grace and God's guidance sort of form this system that kind of helps us along to become agape lovers, to become the type of people that God wants us to be. Almost like bumpers in a bowling lane. The goal isn't to hit the bumpers. The goal is to have the bumpers help you with the goal of knocking down the pins. They're there to help you for this greater objective. Grace and mercy and tolerance and forgiveness, those type of soft things sort of give us the slack where we can fail and get back up and try again. And then God's expectations, when we do get back up, guide us back in the right direction for where God wants us to be. When we are earnest and we sincerely seek God, grace does not fuel passivity because, because we know that grace is not an end in itself, but it's slack from a loving shepherd that that allows his sheep to try and fail and try and fail and to try again. And God's expectations do not fuel legalism because we know that God's commands are not an end in themselves. They're just meant to point to something deeper. God's grace and God's expectations were never meant to be ends in themselves. They are always meant to be something that helps us towards something else. And yet people oftentimes get tempted to make one of them an end in themselves. And what always ends up happening is that if you make God's expectations, that is rule keeping and obedience, if you make that an end in itself, you always end up trying to please a God whose love is conditional, whose love has to be earned. And that is a dead relationship with God. But if you make grace an end in itself, you always end up with a God whose love for you is sort of arbitrary because it's sort of, you're passive. You're not doing anything. It doesn't change you in the way that God wants it to change you. And so when you make either of those an end in itself, it always leads to a dead relationship with God. But if we are sincere and if we're, if we're open to being challenged by the text and open to being challenged by the Spirit, then God's grace and God's expectations can shape us. They really can. They can push back against tendencies that we have inside of us that keep us from growing. One example that I want to share uh, is how we respond to a potential crisis. Uh, you know, we all have crises in our lives. We all have things in our lives that make us anxious and things that we're afraid might happen. And when I worked in mental health, we had a description for two different ways of responding to potential crises. One way of responding is to minimize the potential crisis. It's not that big of a deal. It'll be okay. It'll all work out in the end. This is me. <laughs> this is my tendency. My tendency is to say, ah, it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be okay. And, and that's minimizing. In fact, if you were to live in my house for a week, you would probably hear this conversation between Barbara and I. Uh, I would say, it's no big deal. And Barbara will say, Dan, you're minimizing again. Always, at least once a week. And I always say this, I'm hardly minimizing at all. <laughs> Now, that's, that's one response. The other way is to make a big deal out of the potential crisis. It's to catastrophize it. It's to say everything is not going to be okay. It, everything is not going to work out in the end. And Barbara, and she said I could share this, she has that tendency. 
she has the tendency to catastrophize things. We, we've had times where uh, we've gone to a party or a picnic or a get-together, and five hours later, we're at home on the couch, and she's still worried about something that she said at this party that maybe somebody might have been offended by, or they might have thought that she was callous, or they might have thought that she was stupid or something, and she obsessed. she's catastrophizing some offhanded remark that she made five hours ago that most people probably don't even remember. That's what catastrophizing tendencies look like. But what happens is when we come to the text and we read some of these things, like when I come to the text as a minimizer, I see that, you know what? (laughs) The things that God expects of me, it really does matter. I can't just shrug it off and say it's going to be okay. I can't just uh, rest on the crutch of grace. When God says that he wants me to live a certain way, it really seems like it matters. And when Jesus says that, look, this is what I want my, my children to be like, that matters. I have to take that seriously. Even in the warmth of grace, I have to take God's expectations seriously in my life. If I have a tendency to catastrophize and I come to the text, I tell you what, the Bible has a stark warning for people who catastrophize because people who catastrophize, they tend to be more obsessive about keeping rules because they're anxious about the catastrophe that's about to happen. So they tend to be much more fastidious about making sure they obey and keep all the rules. But the Bible has this warning. You can't meet God's expectations by simply obeying because obedience is sort of just the shell of something much deeper that God is trying to get at. God expects a deeper transformation than mere obedience to rules. In fact, a lot of God's expectations are not even personal. So even if you were personally perfect at being obedient, a lot of his expectations are interpersonal. (laughs) They have to do with relationships. And and so given this kind of deep, sort of complex, advanced sort of expectation that God has, It requires grace. No matter how good you are at keeping rules, you still need that grace. Uh, And so we need both. And and if we can come to the text with open hearts and teachable spirits, those types of teachings in the text, the, the dilemma that I shared at the beginning, that's why we need both of those teachings in there. We need the harsh, unbending expectations for people like me who tend to shrug things off. I need to be slapped in the face by, no, this is serious. And people who tend to catastrophize and who tend to obsess and stress out about life, they need to see the importance of grace. The Bible speaks to a whole lot of people, not just me. And so it speaks to different people and there's different messages. And they seem sometimes to conflict, but I believe that if we wrestle with it, we see that they really don't. They're part of the same love of God. And I think that's the case here. I want to leave you with one sort of analogy to kind of hopefully make all of this stuff practical so that it can help your day-to-day walk uh, with God. And, uh, and what I want you to do is I want you to think of a dashboard. And this is a dashboard of your spiritual vessel, okay? And it's a lot like a car dashboard. It's got little indicator lights that come on. And so here's what happens on your spiritual dashboard. When you sin, a light blinks on. Bing! Uh-oh. There's something wrong with your spiritual vessel. The light came on. So here's what I want you to ask. How do you respond to that sin? How do you respond to that light coming on? Now, if you've made grace an end in itself, there's a good chance that you'll just kind of shrug off that light. Meh. It's just a light. It's just another sin. I'm saved by grace. And you might neglect it. You might assume that the mechanic will fix it sometime later. But of course, what happens with that is that the problem gets worse because you don't address it. And it gets worse and it causes more problems. You need to respond to the indicator light. In fact, now's a good time. Let me just say this really quick. Barbara, your 1996 Toyota Corolla, you took such good care of that car. And when I needed a vehicle, you let me use it. And when that oil light came on, (laughs) I thought it was just sort of a friendly reminder that it's almost time to get an oil change. I had no idea that it was going to fry the motor and destroy your car. And I am so sorry for that. And please forgive me. It was such a great car and you took such good care of it and I ruined it. But that's what happens when we make grace an end in itself, when we minimize is is we can neglect the, the light that comes on in our spiritual dashboard and it can cause more problems. If we've made rule keeping an end in itself, uh, we tend to get fixated on performance. And when we sin and the light comes on, we might feel distressed about the light coming on and and we might even kind of get mesmerized by the light itself and we might try to figure out a way to get rid of that light. And we might find the fuse to unplug to turn the dashboard off and ah... There we go. Now the dashboard has no lights and it's so pretty and it's so clean. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful dashboard. Now we haven't fixed any problems, of course. The problems are still festering underneath. Uh, So 
Here's how I want you to think about this. When we sin and we get a little indicator light on our dashboard saying that there's a problem, Satan wants us to either neglect it, to shrug it off, or to obsess about it. But what I think is God wants us to do neither one of those things. The light on the dashboard, the sin itself, usually isn't the bigger problem. Usually uh, when we sin, we sin because of a whole host of complex forces inside of us. When we sin, we have all of these desires and grievances and addictions and we have disappointments and we have unhealed traumas and we've got we lack social skills maybe and we have wild expectations of how things are going to go and we get disappointed and things like that we're a mess we have all sorts of reasons that cause that indicator to light to go on the indicator light is not the issue what God wants us to do when we sin I believe is he wants us to stop the vessel and to look under the hood and to examine the engine we can examine the engine in the calm of God's grace because God loves us and God gives us slack. It's okay if we fail, but we want to understand why. God wants us to examine the engine. And we can examine the engine in, in the midst of God's grace, in the peace of God's grace, and also in the light of God's guiding expectations. We can take the prompt of sin seriously, uh, but at the same time, we can treat ourselves mercifully. So I would like you to just take a quick moment and just think about when you sin, how do you respond? Do you shrug it off? Do you obsess about it? Or do you stop and do a deeper analysis of what's happening? I encourage, I encourage you to think about this this week uh, as you go about your week. Uh, I am so excited. We, uh, I, I was talking about this sermon, and I was talking about how I was going to look at, at legalism and passivity. And my friend Jason uh, said that, you know, he had some experiences with legalism. He and his wife both had these experiences with legalism. And, and I thought, well, it'd be really great to have them come up and kind of share about some of their experiences. And, and Jason and I go way back, and his wife, Zong Hui, is here as well. And uh, in fact, I was at Bethel in the 90s, and I took a counseling class, and Jason was my instructor. And uh, I loved that class, and, and I'm so honored that he uh, agreed, uh, him and his wife agreed to join us here. And so here's what I want to ask for uh, Jason and Zhang Hui. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience with legalism? Okay, yes. Well, um, for myself, I, um, when Dan was explaining to me about this message, the word that came to my mind was um, <coughs> uh, a legalist in recovery. Um, I, a little bit about my background, just briefly. I grew up... Um, with a lot of fear of judgment and perfectionism, and um, and I think I, I um, and actually when I first came to Christ back in my early twenties, what really drew me to Jesus was just the the grace that He offered and the opportunity for me to be truly open and honest <clears throat> with Him about all those things that I kept hidden, um, but. When I came to Christ, uh, that's what drew me. I never was a, a, a literal legalist in the sense, I, I believed that I was saved by faith, not by my works. But in a sense, I was a practicing legalist, I guess, uh, in terms of performance. I always felt on some level like I had a scorecard uh, in my back pocket. And, uh, you know, sometimes I would get an F, <laughs> and that's what I would fear the most. Uh, and sometimes I would get an A, and then I would feed on that. And, and, and uh, so I was trying to be a good Christian fill-in-the-blank, you know, professor, uh, father, uh, husband, you name it. And, um, yeah, and so that's a little bit about my experience with legalism. I can talk more about um, how Jesus really helped me over a 40-year journey to help me to get more freedom, and he, I'm still in the process. Yeah. Okay. I grew up in a Christian home, and I really am very thankful that I have a mother that is a genuine Christian and really live out the faith. But all the churches I have gone to, I think, you know, we got a lot of instructions and a lot of times is what to do, what not to do. 
and collecting over so many years is like I have very long list of if you are a good Christian, you will do this and this, this. If you don't do and you don't do this, and if you don't follow this, then you are not a good Christian. Mm -hmm. And you might be barely saved, but God is not pleased with you. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't love you as much. <laughs> and also, I found that, you know, all the different theologies and different teachings at church, uh, at different churches uh, make me feel like uh, we are putting God in boxes. And some are bigger boxes, some are smaller boxes, but there are all kinds of boxes. And, you know, and they sometimes don't overlap at all. And so, you know, a lot of times kind of equating the following the instructions and following all the do's and don'ts us uh, a law or requirement to be accepted mm. by Christ. And, and then I found this kind of um, attitude that just bring becoming legalistic and then it bring up judgmental attitude toward people and toward myself. Mm -hmm. And so, and then this judgmental attitude, usually the outcome is either pride or shame. Mm. And they remind me of your book I have read. <laughs> that confident. Tell me, tell me about this book. <laughs> tell me more about that. Yeah. I read it too long ago. <laughs> but I clearly remember these two, the ditches of uh, bigness and smallness. And, you know, none of e either pride or shame would prevent us from coming to the throne of grace mm. and accept Grace us, grace is. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Uh, you, you talked about having a scorecard in your back pocket. Yeah. I got to confess, like, it's weird how relationships persist because you were my teacher in college. <laughs> and I still feel like I have to be on my best behavior here because you, you could still change my grade. I'm, I have that, that concern. So, uh, no, I, I, I just, I love your story and I love that your, your kind of honesty about kind of what you've experienced. And what I would love to hear is what kinds of things do you recommend, maybe what helped you to kind of get out of this legalistic mindset into kind of a, a healthier mindset? Okay, I'll, I'll answer first. First is, um, I think, you know, since I grew up in a Christian home and went to church and all the summer camp and all that, you name it, you know, even in Taiwan, and um, I feel, you know, all the learning I have done with the discipline of scriptural reading, prayer, and all that have always been helpful, but, you know, it's under this legalistic uh, motivation. So it doesn't change, really transform my life from inside. Mm. It's more adding mm. to how I behave to be accepted. Mm. And, you know, for a period of time, um, that we started listening to the preaching at Wooden Hill Church, and I started reading books written by Boyd <laughs> and other people, you know, uh, good books. And I found good reading and teaching really helped me. Mm -hmm. And I think of Romans 12, 2 and 3, and you say, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And to me, this renewing of the mind is very important. And when I feel like the, my mind was renewed by good teaching, and you know, the classes we have attended here, we have attended quite a few classes, like Paul Eddy's Covenant, mm. mm -hmm. and Classic. Uh, right, Classic. <laughs> <laughs> and exploring the kingdom, and um, all this like changed my my thinking uh, about a lot of things. For example, it changed my image of God mm. in a way. You know, it's not like you know when I heard Greg say. 
his, you know, how he figure out how to interpret certain things differently, it doesn't immediately make me feel like he was saying that I take it as the ultimate truth. And, and it's like, it's just helped me to get out of the boxes I was in, mm. or I put God in, yeah. and start seeing that that's not the only way to interpret this situation and you know so God is much bigger than any box mm-hmm. including the box that maybe Greg construct <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to I think say he would say that I think Greg would agree with that yes. Yes. yeah so yes. and and he makes sure we understand I remember he said that you know um, even if I'm wrong God is still right that's right yeah. And we want to follow Christ. Mm. So that's first thing about changing the God, image of God. So in the past, I feel like I have to accept a lot of can't answer. Mm. You know, can't, can't answers. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, English is my, not my first that's language. Great. No, <laughs> that's why I decided I probably better print out my, you know, the verses in English. Otherwise, if I speak in Chinese... <laughs> <laughs> Nobody will understand. But um, that, for example, the question about uh, you know uh, suffering, the very hard problem of suffering that for so many thousands of years people would try try to solve, and also even as simple as speaking in tongue, whether it's still being done now, um, that I have heard so many can't answer correct answer. And I have been asking those questions, questioning, and then I was feeling like I was viewed of kind of troublemaker, <laughs> like going off the right path. Yeah. And But I, when I come to the Wooden Hill Church, I feel tough questions can be asked, actually are encouraged to be asked and wrestled together. Isn't that great? Yeah. Isn't that great? <laughs> and no, and so, and God wouldn't be embarrassed for not being able to answer them. Yeah. We can ask. And he's bigger than that. And then also, I, uh, the image of God, God's love. I remember uh Greg going through the series, a few series about God's love, and clearly remember that he said that when this series title was set, people would think that, what, what can you say much about God's love? We have heard it all the time, and it's so clear. And, and I remember he said, if you feel like you already know about God's love, that means you don't know at all. And if you start thinking, I might not understand, really understand, you have just started understanding it. Mm, and that, that was a great series. Right. Series. And <laughs> in that series movie so much. And I remember uh, one time he was talking about the, um, you don't think you can ever surprise God in what you do to make him not to love you. Even if you commit murder and God wouldn't be there say oh I can't believe she did that you know right. what should I do should I continue to love her or not okay. <laughs> and so, so love is bigger than those rules much bigger that's, that's right. and yeah. you know so I think a lot of my transformation inside is is from responding to this love when I finally started to sense that was so much bigger than I think, so much deeper, mm-hmm. and really transformed me. Yeah. And then quickly, a couple other things I feel make a big difference is, uh, you know, the teaching about concentric circle. Oh, yeah. That Christ is the absolute center of our faith. And even scripture, I mean, a printed word. <laughs> and uh, dogma, a dogma, dogma, dogma um, you know, uh, what's it? Doctrine. Doctrines, traditions, opinions. Opinions, there you go, you got it. Yeah, it's, it's all the outer <laughs> circle. And that makes such a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Before, before I get confused and stuck at smallest, you know, difference, that different denomino- uh, denominations that believe in. Yeah. Or, you know, and then I get very confused and I feel like 
I have this house of cards, and if one card is full, fallen, then my faith cannot hold together. That's right. And this gives you a lot of leeway and a lot of kind of grace. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, my focus become I want to follow Christ. I want to know him, and he is in the center. All outer things, I don't have to have them all figured out. Right. Even it's not sure that, you know, it doesn't affect my, the foundation of my faith. So, and then the, the teaching about the unsurpassable worth, especially through the Luke series, then makes a big difference in both of our lives. You know, seeing yeah. everyone from that. If we can start to see that, we believe in God, see myself. Hmm. And everyone else with unsurpassable love, and I think it really helped me get out of that legalistic That's mm. great. mindset. Jason, yeah. what do you? How well, about I'll you? just add some to that. Is I, I think she really said a lot there. But um, I think for me, um, like I said, it, it, you know, the just honest, authentic encounter hmm. with God and with God's people has been um, what has really, um, over the 40 years I've known him, um, progressively drawn me further and further into what he's inviting us into. And, um, you know, um, I was reading uh, before Dan asked me in, in the book of Hebrews this past week, and it just fits in so well, just how uh, contrasting the, you know, the old covenant with the new covenant that we are called into and um, it's just so amazing there is a verse um, that I want to memorize it's um, uh, Hebrews 10 uh, 19 to 22 and it says um, therefore brothers and sisters since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way opened us through the curtain that is the body, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest, who is Jesus, over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. And over the <clears throat> 40 years that, you know, God has just pr progressively revealed more and more as I've come to him in uh, honesty. I, I mean, that's been the core of how God has... Um, uh, grown me and healed me is that I've always felt like I could come to him just as I am in my as-is condition and he loves me and he loves all of us in our as-is condition um, which um, uh, you know lately I've been really drawn into some of the writings and thoughts of Christian mystics and uh, you know one of Thomas Burton talks about how we uh, we are uh, at our core God has made us our true self uh, to be in union with God and uh, then we have this false self that we all develop which is trying to live life and be who we are independent of God and so I, I think a lot of my um, desire has been a growing desire to, um, in silence, just spend time mm. with him in his presence. And um, it's, the, it's the grace that really helps me because what I realize, I, I sometimes, in, in one of the verses it talks about God as a consuming fire, yeah. that as we gaze at him, uh, that we become more and more like him. Mm. And uh, I Sometimes it's like I can bring all of my questions and, um, and my uh, areas that I know I'm imperfect about, like my scorecard and my desire to get life out of that scorecard, and I just can come to him with, sometimes without even any words. And it's just like I, his love and mercy and grace helps me to relax and, um, and then be able to um, you know, sometimes he'll speak to me about something. Sometimes it doesn't even mean words, but it, there's a sense of just being in his presence helps me to let go more and more of some of those parts of myself that keep me from more fully living in that union with him, which is so wonderful. Yeah. 
I should have warned you that it's like a time warp up here. We step up under the lights and time just goes like, we're, I have five questions here. We got to two and we're already done. We're, we're out of time. I, I, feel, I feel so bad. I, I want to I get to these. Maybe, maybe we can do something on Musecast with this as well, but uh, we're out of time, unfortunately. So thank you so much for sharing your experience. Uh, and it, it's really, I mean, it's so perfect for the message that I shared. And so I, I personally appreciate it. And, and I, I'm confident that people that, uh, uh, People who are watching will get a lot out of it as well. I just want to share uh, a couple things that we have here at Woodland Hills. We have the MuseCast, which I'm a part of, and that happens on Tuesday at 4 o'clock on YouTube. Myself and Oshida and Shauna, we're going to go deeper into this message, and I got a bunch of nuggets that I had to cut out, and so I'm going to talk about some of those things on Tuesday. So please join us uh, for that. And then also we have gathering groups on Tuesdays, and uh, so you can come online and join groups online and talk about about the sermon and, and things like that. And then also, if you have any prayer needs, uh, please don't hesitate to go to our Zoom prayer rooms, and, and the, the address is on the screen. Thanks, everybody, for being a part of uh, uh, online church here at Woodland Hills, and uh, I, I can't wait to see you in person. Uh, but in a strange way, I feel very connected to you still, and I love you all, and we all miss you here in the building, and we can't wait to see you. Uh, Jason and Zonkwe, thank you so much for participating and giving your wisdom here uh, for our, our congregation. So thanks, everybody.